Galaxy Brains. The weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. I'm immersed in the verse and the coins that I join when I purchase. No, I furnish into purses. No, my person is purpose. Cause my passion is worth it. I earn it. Never feeling like I got another life to live Cause I got plenty to give so long as the planet still spins Damn it's been panic, insanity managed, humanity manic Vanity demands vigilance Yo the ink, I've been spilling it, every beat I've been killing it Our guest this week is top billing Tyler Williams Even on vacation, no one is filling in I'll be rapping in my grave when the shovels start filling it In all seriousness, the game is never ending There's always something pending, and always needs defending But I am always sending, and you know I'm not pretending When I tell you I'm contending that we're winning in the ending Always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. As I said, we are talking with Tyler Williams, head of public policy at Galaxy Digital, about the ongoings in Washington, both generally and in crypto. And of course, we'll check in with our good friend Bimnet of BB to talk markets and macro. But before we get to all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information containing this podcast represents investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Getting fast at that, Finn. Uh, I don't know. We're going to need to. It's not sped up. Hey, I'm in here on vacation for y'all. I never miss a Galaxy Brains. We've got a great one for you. So let's get right into it. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, how are you, my friend? Good to see Doing you. Doing well. Nice to see you too. I know you're on vacation. So Technically, <laughs> I'm not here. Someone I was in the office. I'm in the office because I'm on vacation in New York. And um, someone was like, "Oh, Alex, about that thing." I was like, "No, no, no. I'm not here. Yep. Don't talk to me." But I will talk to you, my friend, because it's been an exciting. Uh, it's been exciting in markets. Absolutely. Just point out last week on our show, you said uh, the gold was going higher. It, yep. It has. We're through two thousand. Yep. Um, you talked about the incredible technical setup for Bitcoin. It was higher on the uh, the monthly, the weekly, the daily chart looked good. We closed the quarter. Um, three consecutive up months. Correct. Uh, green. And an outside month to yeah. boot. But I will say, just in the couple of days since then, Bitcoin holding in the twenty eight k range. Um, but but a big geopolitical maneuver here. OPEC unexpectedly cutting production um, and oil is ripping higher, which you pointed out was perhaps, if that were to happen, a risk for the market. What's happening now, uh, I guess, with the oil thing and how's that impacting? Yeah, stuff? so, you know, more specifically, we had OPEC and OPEC Plus uh, agree to a surprise cut of about a one and a half million barrels per day. Is that a lot? Uh, that that is decently chunky. Okay. Um, the U.S. for context consumes about twenty million barrels per day, um, so it's a lot. But remember, um, you know, with commodities and with any market in general, it's a market set at the margin. Yeah. Right. So if you take one and a half million barrels per day off, you know, the market, right? It's definitely going to apply upward pressure to to to, to prices. In addition, um, some of the research we we've read suggests that um, OPEC. You know, has more pricing power the, the, than ever, as in the marginal supply is, is more relevant than from it has OPEC. been yeah. um, you know, from OPEC and OPEC yeah, yeah, Plus. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, the market is, is correct in, in sort of pushing um, crude prices higher. And we went from about $75 uh, a barrel for, for WTI crude uh, to about $81 a barrel. That's been a pretty significant move. And through $81, $82 a barrel, um, there, there, there's a 
pretty strong resistance there um, that we've kind of been at for the past, you know, three to four months. So if we move through these levels, you know, it's, it kind of suggests you're, you're going to be headed towards 90 or even $100 a barrel. Um, most of the street has moved up there. Their year-end forecast for oil. Um, we're in the camp of, you know, I, I think in, in the back half of this year, um, you know, you're probably going to see uh, oil prices closer to $100 a barrel. Um Partially a function of, of OPEC and OPEC Plus, you know, being very strong-handed in, in terms of supply cuts, but it's also a function of dollar weakening. Um, you know, today we've had a pretty, you know, meaningful weakening of the dollar versus gold, but but also versus other uh, currencies. Um, and I think that speaks to um, what we've had recently in terms of, of, of data. Um, and what we've had in terms of the data is, is, is a meaningful de- continuation of the de- de- deterioration that we've seen. Right. Um, so ma- ISM manufacturing uh, yesterday was incredibly weak. The prices paid component w- w- was really weak, which is inflation. The employment section was really weak. And then today we got job openings that, that dropped by a lot, durable goods that, that didn't look good. Um, so even though oil has, has moved higher and that is sort of uh, – uh, a very strong feedback loop into inflation. The hard data we've seen from, and, and the soft data we've seen from you know manufacturing and, and the, the real economy in the U.S. is suggesting quite the opposite, uh, which is a slowdown in, in pressures. I and, see. and some of the other things I've seen, like you know credit card spend, spending data for, for March is, is like down meaningfully month over month. Um, so things of that nature point to like a, a cool down in, in the U.S. economy. But again, energy has such a strong feedback loop into like literally every good and service right that it's a, a risk that that people need to be aware of and one of the ways you know here at galaxy you know we think about it and you know you can look at like option structures on on crude or energy markets and stuff and so i definitely think that it, it should be in the average investors you know kind of toolkit uh, because that is a huge kind of like tail scenario for, for, for the market and for the, the disinflation story. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about the cooling down should be good for the risk assets because it could mean the Fed's doing its job and they yeah. don't have to hike as much and yep. then we can finally like you know take the foot off the gas on rates. But if energy is getting much more expensive or if other commodities eventually do, right, the China reopening is right still happening, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, then that that has a pretty inflationary impact long term. And that and it's awful because it's one of the things the Fed really can't yeah, impact can't. very yep. much, right? So they're, they have to, if inflation overall stays high or goes higher, even while the economy is cooling, but the thing causing it is something the Fed barely can affect. Um, that's a we're still in that rock and hard place scenario. Oh, absolutely. I would hate to be a, a, a central banker right now. Um, but again, like, you know, they are. Yeah, there's no there's no there's there's no good outcome here. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of taking my cues from uh, the, the, the markets. And what the markets are telling you is that, you know, while there are upside risks to oil and stuff like it didn't go to 100 after the su- surprise cut. True. And rates have been moving lower. And the market is pricing in cuts. I saw this. And, and and the dollar is weakening and risk assets are rallying, right? And so it speaks to kind of, you know, what we talked about last week on, on, on the podcast, which is the, the, the right tail of interest rate policy risk is kind of being removed from, from, from the market, right? Even if oil prices were to get, you know, much higher, I think folks realize that you know, central bankers understand the limitations of, of, of monetary policy and aren't going to pursue that crazy six, seven percent interest rate policy if, you know, all of a sudden, you know, bananas yeah. start to go through the moon. Well, and there are other things, you, right? I mean, yeah. if, if oil and gas go higher, I mean, I know we're really talking about 
oil um, and not gas. Um, but if energy goes higher, right, then things like the U.S. like fracking complex maybe comes back online and can sort of. It takes time. I know yeah, it does. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, or, no, or, no, or, you're right. But there are other policy decisions that theoretically can be made in the U.S. to put it to, to sort of help out on the oil front. You can literally allow more drilling, for example. I know, again, yep. this administration's not very keen on that. But if it got really bad, there are other tools other than interest rates. To, to push back on that too. So very yeah. interesting. So so the S like you said, risk assets are rallying. I saw um, S and P's through forty one hundred, which I, I'm not an expert on this, but on TV, that's what they've been talking about <laughs> as a key level on CNBC for literally weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. Is like the, what the sort of average, you know, near term bull has been targeting is the bullish level, um, and it's we're through that. And Nasdaq's also you know outperforming a lot. I mean, you're up almost, you know, I think like 17, 18% on the year. Right. Um, but, you know, one of the key things that, you know, I think is worth pointing out is you're entering a period of, of very strong seasonality. It's just about to say this. April alone as a specific month is yes. a very bullish month. Very bullish month. Like, <laughs> uh, like 80% hit, hit rate of like being bullish. Like yeah. One of the highest months on average. Which is wild. And then if you look at like historical returns based on years where, you know, S&P had a good start to Q1. Yeah. Like odds are you're going to have a great Rest of There's the year. There's only a couple years where it was up in and up actually, less than it was. Then I was going to say there wasn't yeah. even. Are there even any years there, where it's down for the year? I saw there were no, some, no, no, no. There was no, like no. one year in the last thirty where it like was up a lot in Q1, but then barely Didn't eked move, out yeah. like one extra percent. Yeah, I it was think like that plus, was uh, 1987 yeah, or something yeah, yeah. where it was up seven percent, then it closed the year up eight or so. Something right, along right, right. It's but usually, long story short, there's been about twenty five times when S and P's been up more than seven percent in. Uh, Q1, and basically 23 of those 25, you ended up having a great rest of the year. Crazy. Um, so there, there's some good data to, to support. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, that's the kind strength. of it's sort of a historical guidance Correct. concept, but it's not it's not prescriptive at all. Anything can happen. We're in crazy times. No, no, absolutely. But but still, I mean, yeah, it's just a, it's just such a weird time here. Yeah. And, and, and then the other thing to think about is 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 just like although there there's feels like there's a lot of uncertainty in the world still. Yeah. Right. The actual uncertainty priced in by the markets has actually come off a lot. Interesting. And that's actually generally risk positive, right? So when we had that whole banking crisis, interest rate vol shot up and twos are moving 25 basis points up and down like like crazy. And now it's like a little bit more gradual. I mean, today is a little bit of an aberration given, you know, the, the data print we've had. But the interest rate vol has, has come off a little bit. Liquidity has entered the market. The VIX is, you know, on an 18 handle now. You know, we spiked through 30 dur during that, that yeah. crisis. And generally speaking, like it, it's been a little bit calmer. Mm -hmm. And I think the Fed is is more in a in a position where it's, it's kind of wait and see. Right they're, They don't want to really cut rates throughout the balance. They just kind of want to wait and see. They'll go one more meeting, most likely, and then just wait and see. So there's a lot less uncertainty in the market, I think. And they got and a, they got rates up high. Pretty I mean, high enough. Like yeah. They did a lot Reasonably, of hiking. Reasonably high. We're not at the beginning of the hiking cycle. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, one of the ways I, I think about my equation, mentally at least, for, for the market is, like, the more uncertainty there is, the, the lower the prices, generally speaking. And... So right now we're, we're adding more uh, less uncertainty into the market, yeah. and people are uh, more comfortable. We're adding more certainty. Correct. People and so, and it's also just a function of like uh, a ten million dollar position on a twenty vol is very different than a ten million dollar position on a forty vol, right? And so naturally, you know, as vol comes down, you have room to add to, to notionally to to your yep. position because yep. your risk unit is actually staying constant as you're 
notional. And so as vol comes down, people can take more more risk. Um, and I think that's what you're you're kind of seeing, you know, with things like S and P, Nasdaq, and a little bit of crypto. What do you see? Yeah, I was going to say, how does this play into crypto? Let me set the stage here. I just saw that um, ETH BTC is back up a little bit. I mean, yep. it's what are like point oh six four ish. That's five. Handle, I think oh six five. Yeah. Um, and it had gotten down to like point oh six two ish. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, mm -hmm. so ETH has been outperforming just the last few days. Uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, I think year to date still outperforming, but. Uh, ETH, but you know, is that part of this? It's sort of like, well, we're in a little bit of a, you know, more risk uh, on mentality right now. The street is feeling a little bit more comfortable, and ETH is seen as a little bit more risky. It certainly is higher vol than Bitcoin. Is that part of the story? Um, so I think it's it's the ETH BTC story. Um, to me, is just positioning. Yeah. Right. Um, people, you know, got very bulled up on on Bitcoin after you know the the banking crisis. You know, fiat debasement. Banking insecurity, etc. Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. Correct, that whole and story. then you know gold was ripping as well, and so you know it had a really strong narrative, positive narrative, and you know ETH with, with Shanghai upgrade coming up, a little bit of it, uncertainty, a little bit of uncertainty, and so what did you have? You have people positioned for that, and so ETH BTC moved a lot lower, right? As you know, Bitcoin like had its its huge leg higher, and then you're left with a in a situation where everybody's kind of like max long Bitcoin and max underweight eth mm -hmm. and that's where we were like two days ago yeah. and and then people are like wait eth has been trying to break through like 1820 like seven times now yeah and like it broke through that level i mean today and you had a subsequent rally in, in, in eth btc i think the high has been like 1880 yep. in uh i think it's the highest Certainly highest year to date like for, basically for, for ETH. since merge. I mean, yeah. merge we got to like almost nineteen hundred and change. Yeah, in uh, September. So like, yeah, yeah. And so I think what you've seen over the past like two days is just a positioning unwind where people got a little overextended on Bitcoin and a little underexposed to to ETH. Um, and and you you just had that 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 unwind happening. Yeah. yeah. I think fundamentally, like I still prefer being long Bitcoin, but there's no issue being long both right now. Yep. Um, and, you know, I continue to think that one of the best ways to express it is, you know, upside options. I think, you know, people really underestimate, you know, kind of, you know, how violent moves to, to the upside can be, especially when, when you take out, you know, technical levels. You know, if you think about it, we went from 20 to 28K in the span of two weeks, mm -hmm. right? That's a, you know, a huge move. Yeah. Right? That's a 40% move. Yeah. Like that can happen in two weeks yeah right and so you know one month implied vol at like 60 doesn't really make that much sense in this kind of a market and so i i, I still think that the best way to to play for for crypto upside is probably in, in optionality um but being long also <laughs> long and strong uh yeah well it's a fascinating time i'm excited to just keep following this i can't it, no I mean, absolutely i mean it's just it's it's a much more interesting time in my mind now than it was like say last summer remember we had that episode with you and uh, robert bukoki and christine kim i think maybe like june of yeah. 22 and we were sort of max bearish uh i mean it was i think like that, 18 19k bitcoin yeah, this is and this, then we went to like 16 five i know this yeah. is this famous in my mind famous episode where we asked everyone to say a positive thing and you were just like straight up stumped couldn't come up with anything <laughs> and um and yeah that was an, an interesting time but i yeah. just that the complexities swirling around in this market now are so interesting the geopolitical stuff happening with china's reopening but also china making all these moves on the world stage 
Um, you know, Finland just formally entered NATO like this morning, um, which, you know, is is literally an adjacent country, adds a dramatic amount of border with Russia to NATO. Um, there's just a bunch of stuff happening. Even Mexico's foreign minister last week mm-hmm. said that uh, they were uh, they that their vision was aligned with the BRICS countries. They're interested in doing more with BRICS. I'm like, that's that's to our southern neighbor, right? I, I mean, there's well, a whole bunch. Get the debt ceiling. Heard of NAFTA guys? We're going to talk with Tyler <laughs> Williams. I know <laughs> NAFTA. We're going to talk with Tyler Williams in a bit yeah. about a little bit about um, about the debt ceiling debate, which still has to happen in the U.S., you know, probably yeah. gets solved. That's I, I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces that no, makes absolutely. it an exciting time. So I'm looking forward to keep talking with you about it. Um, but that's it for today. Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, our good friend. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's go now to our guest, Tyler Williams, uh, Regulatory Council, Regulatory Affairs Council, Head of Public Policy at Galaxy Digital. Tyler, our friend, good to see you again. Good to see you, Alex. Thanks for having me back. New year, uh, new beginning, new timeline, Galaxy Brains. <laughs> it's We're already in the second quarter. The last time we had you on Galaxy Brains, I believe it was the week that FTX blew up. Um, so quite a while ago, a lot has changed. I guess just before we even get into all that, you know, I'm in New York, you're in Washington, I think about eight blocks from us in lower Manhattan, uh, former President Donald Trump is being indicted as I speak. It is Tuesday. Um, it is Tuesday, February, uh, April 4th, Tuesday, April 4th. And, the, and there are helicopters overhead here in New York. It's a little bit of a scene. What is the mood there in Washington and, and on, on this Trump indictment? So, so honestly, Congress is out. Um both the House and the Senate are not in session. So that definitely colors and affects the general mood in Washington. Like the town is just slower when members aren't here. So I haven't seen any sort of um, sort of protracted outcry in uh, Washington that we have seen on the news and otherwise in lower Manhattan. So I think it's it's drastically different, but we're in uncharted, like, you know, new new history, right? Like we haven't seen this in terms of uh, indicting a former president or a sitting president in quite some time. I think there's maybe one previous example in history, but I don't know the facts and circumstances of that. So I won't count all of them. Yeah, and 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 I think the 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 example I'm I'm willing to be wrong on this, but maybe was it like uh, Teddy Roosevelt supposedly had got like a speeding ticket or something? That that's the story I heard. I don't know if it's true, but that I mean that's the level of discrepancy we're talking about versus what the former president trump is is facing yeah i i think that's right that's what memory serves me but i wasn't 100 percent sure either uh but we, we are in a new new world order i guess i mean president nixon was uh certainly in legal jeopardy but he was pardoned um right. and uh i don't know maybe back in the you know uh and challenging people to a dual days there was something here or there that could have happened but i don't know yeah it's it's pretty wild Sure. We, we, I think they, we settled our legal scores in different mechanisms uh, 150 years ago than we do today. Yeah. As uh, as, um, you know, they say in Hamilton, the musical, everything's legal in New Jersey. Um, look, let's let's move into the real the real reason we're talking. How has Washington changed? We talked in uh, early November of 2022. It was right after the congressional elections, the midterm elections. I think when we spoke, they hadn't even actually finalized that Republicans had won the House. Of course, they did eventually win by a narrow margin. They're now in control of the House. Um, but it's been, uh, you know, almost five months since we spoke. And and a lot has happened, broadly speaking. How, what, how does Washington feel different since it did uh, than it did back then? I think it feels quite different. Um, I think that 
the FTX debacle and blow up has definitely colored uh, the crypto economy in Washington. That that is uh, for sure a true true statement. Um, I think in addition to that, what we've seen is other other issues in the financial services sector and in our economy have started to creep up, and that too has colored Washington. So if you think of Congress is generally a reactive body. They try to solve problems that are like emergency or exigent. And sometimes they do a good job about planning for the future. But usually it's like dedicated in spending. It's dedicated in very specific areas. And here what we have seen is the the banking issues that have occurred with SVB and Silvergate and Signature. Uh, that has caused at least the financial services policy community to sort of turn their attention a little bit more to issues affecting the traditional banking sector and perhaps the, perhaps the commercial real estate market as well, uh, which gets into like a broader macro topic um, about interest rate policy and like our general spending environment. So I think it has shifted policymakers and legislators' opinions or uh, maybe not opinions, has shifted their focus a little bit, uh, but that doesn't, uh, that shouldn't, miss the underlying current. There's still a lot of people who are working on digital asset policy in both the House and the Senate and then also in the administration. So there's still people working on it. So how is the banking crisis uh, really, you know, I guess it's what, it's it's now three, four weeks, maybe four weeks since SVB uh, was taken over-ish. Um, and, you know, there was, yeah, I guess sort of how is that simmered? Now they're on, on break. Um, are we likely to see any any legislative changes? I know there's oversight that's been happening, um, and some hearings have already occurred where where you know the FDIC was in Washington, the chairman, and um, certainly Jay Powell has did his um, you know semi annual appearance where he was um, actually that was right before it. What is the mood? I mean, what what are people blaming for it, or or what do we, what do you think comes out of it from a legislative perspective? Well, as as this shouldn't shock anyone or any listener, but um, you know, Washington's very good at pointing fingers at each other. So we had uh, the crisis in 2008. And then in the immediate aftermath, we had Dodd-Frank. And, you know, Dodd-Frank was billed as an end to too big to fail. And it was going to ensure that institutions who were in troubled, uh, troubled financial situation, they had a path to resolving um, that financial, uh, financial stress in an orderly manner. And it wasn't going to cost taxpayers. That's literally in like the beginning of Dodd-Frank. And so now we're here today and in 2018, there was some legislative uh, effort and people commonly refer to this as S2155, uh, which was largely billed as uh, fixing sort of the regulatory overreach and uh, impact of Dodd-Frank to um, community banks, mid-sized banks, and sort of like the, the super regionals, I'll call it. Uh, the banks that are above like a, a hundred billion, below two hundred and fifty uh, billion in assets, and so what we had was that bill uh, had broad bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate, and was signed into law. And there are some folks in Washington that are are pointing to that bill as um, sort of the reason that SVB went down. And what we've seen in that is like a little bit of finger pointing. I, I would say there's close to a 0% chance that we see legislative um, movement to uh, restore or uh, strip that bill or to remove the authority from uh, the Fed for tailoring in different size institutions. But what I think we will see is the Fed um, 
and particularly the vice chair of supervision, Michael Barr, use his existing authority under the, the legislation to ensure that the larger institutions on that scale, that the regulators and supervisors have more tools available to them and perhaps tailored tools in that are available to them. So I think we'll see the regulators take sort of a, a new, fresh look at the, the legislation. Yeah, that's a question because I know some some on the left in particular have blamed that uh, they've called that 2018 reform S2155 a watering down of Dodd-Frank. Um, and, and I guess this is – please correct me. But my understanding, the reason they say that is that it, it, what, it, it raised the threshold uh, that banks would be SIFIs, considered SIFIs, right? So it, it – it's thus sort of exempting some, like you said, super regional, you know, big banks, but not big enough from additional oversight. I would say it, it gave the Fed additional tools to tailor their supervisor and regulatory regime within certain size parameters so that mm. those banks that were larger than 150 now had new, the regulars had new supervisory uh, tools to look at them and put them into different categories for I see. Uh, capital and liquidity. Rather than you know prescribing it sort of top down from Congress, yeah, I, I, I yes, that's exactly a little bit right. more leeway. Exactly right. But uh, you know that that a, a big, big <laughs> the banks are holding a lot of debt. A lot of them are from right before interest rates started to dramatically rise, right? Um, and and some of those are you know hold to maturity that don't really get fully exposed on the balance sheet. But more broadly, isn't this a problem the Fed? like definitely was well aware of like they, aren't they aware whether you're a you know 50 billion dollar bank fed member bank or 150 billion aren't they aware of what you have on your balance sheet like it, like shouldn't this to what extent was this foreseeable like just in general by from the supervisory side of the fed it, it seems to me highly foreseeable uh, and the the fed and the reserve banks and the bank regulatory system like they all have different dedicated supervisory and exam teams that are specifically focused on different sized institutions and so you'll have like large bank groups you'll have community bank groups and you'll have mid-sized groups and almost every one of the banking regulators and each one of their jobs is to ensure that like their the safety and soundness of the banking system isn't compromised so there's literally like probably thousands of employees across like the, the federal banking regulators that their sole focus is supposed to be the safety and soundness of the banking banking system. Yeah. And, and, and it just seems to me that um, and, you know, of course, they've come out since they did the, the BTFP um, and, and sort of other backstopping measures. Um, and we did only see so far SVB um, and Signature. Um, I'm not even going to include Silvergate in this because, I mean, they, they certainly – it's a little bit more nuanced there, and they they weren't taken over, right? They just <laughs> closed shop, um, and then and then you know First Republic sort of allowed to limp on, and then eventually you know Credit Suisse abroad. But like you know, they, they they've been coming out saying the banking system is safe and sound, but obviously now it's very clear that it's it's really on relatively you know tentative footing, absent the the unlimited backstop that ultimately the Fed can provide. Right. I mean, there's a lot of banks that whose whose balance sheets look pretty weak. Right. And and so they, it's just not clear. To, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding this. I understand how Fed policy, they can't come out and say, by the way, things are looking shaky. Right. Because the second they say that things will collapse. Right. I mean, they have to sort of always project confidence. But like it just seems to me that um, this is a very foreseeable problem that they everyone was so shocked by. 
I, I don't disagree that it was a foreseeable problem. And my comment earlier about the commercial real estate, yeah. um, it, you know, if we see a weakening in the commercial real estate market, like that could bleed into like a broader swath of the banking system. Because if you look at the balance sheets of like community banks all across America, they all hold a significant amount of commercial real estate exposure on their balance sheet. Like true, it's very dedicated and localized in different banks. And so like, unique risks might not sort of present across the entire system, but it might be another weak spot, particularly mm -hmm. if we see like a continual rising rate environment and we start to see like defaults actually tick up. I did see. Uh, we haven't seen that. We haven't, what I was going to say is we haven't seen that today like we saw in the run up to the 08 crisis. Uh, but I don't disagree at all with you what you said. Like the <laughs> policy is a little confusing because in 08, we said we have a banking, we have a, a crisis. We had a, uh, a mortgage crisis that led into significant sort of wholesale uh, banking system reforms. And then we pur we purported to end too big to fail. And now we have the banking crisis that exists in like the SVB in the last couple months. And now we have a situation where like, I'm not entirely sure what the projected policy is other than we certainly didn't end too big to fail. We just said, um, we're gonna reignite all of the emergency liquidity provisioning tools that our banking regulators have um, and on a very spot basis. I think that's the policy now. That's what it seems like. Um, all right, let's let's <laughs> let's move on a little bit because um, the banking thing is it's just a it's just a wild thing. I joke that like you know banks are like it's like magic, right? Like you know you just uh, it, they it, you know if I run a central bank or or a bank, I mean in general, like you you just like you have to say it's fine the entire way down, right? It's like no matter where it is, you you can never. We could have an entire session dedicated just to this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But exactly. So let's let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about the crypto and banking stuff. Um, you know, really, I want to actually just focus on Signature in particular. We've talked, I think, and you know, certainly in, from my platform at Galaxy Research, we've written a lot about, um, you know, Silvergate and Signature and and the and and um, the banking crisis from a crypto standpoint. But you know, even just this earlier this week, I think yesterday or Sunday, um, in Barron's, Barney Frank, the form, you know, of, of Dodd Frank, right, former chairman of House Financial Services during the Great Financial Crisis of two thousand eight. Um, and co-sponsor, named co-sponsor of Dodd-Frank. Um, he was a director on the board of Signature Bank. And, and he said right after um, it was seized by NYDFS and then and given to the FDIC, um, and he continues to say that he believes that it was targeted because of its crypto activities. He believes it was solvent. Um, you know, what do you make of these comments? I, 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 certainly, I'm sympathetic to this because um, it seems as if it was seized. It was seized right before the backstop was announced, literally minutes before, right? And First Republic has sort of been allowed to limp on uh, when it looks quite impaired, um, but Signature was not. And and the NYDFS has said expressly that it wasn't that the reason that NYDFS says it was seized was because of a crisis of confidence in the bank's leadership as it relates to its reporting. That's literally what. The superintendent uh, Harris of the NYDFS, its primary regulator, said about Signature. Um, but Barney Frank, a director there, says they believed it was solvent um, and it could have opened on that Monday. And he said just this past Sunday that he believes crypto was targeted. You know, what are your thoughts on this? 
I, I wouldn't be shocked at all if it was targeted for those specific reasons. I haven't examined like the balance sheet uh, to know like whether or not like the financial distress of the company like wasn't the like but for cause of like the receivership. Yeah. However, as as you noted, like we've we've talked and written about in the research the successive actions that have transpired just in this calendar year, starting from January third, where there was like the joint statement plus like the. Um, joint statement from the Prudential Banking Regulators, plus the custodial decision and and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And I I think what we have seen, and the only thing that we didn't cover within that research was the, there was a FDIC IG report that explicitly um, stated that there were 136 banks in the United States that were interested in or providing um, services to the crypto economy. And if you think about that in like the broad scale of like the banking system, like I don't know what the exact number is today, but we have like close to 5,000 FDIC insured banks in the US. So it's like a a subfraction of a fraction of a percentage point of the banking system uh, that is providing services to the sector. And then we've seen these successive actions plus um, the receiverships and uh, of of uh, one of the main sort of financial conduits and the on-ramps to the, the digital asset economy being taken into receivership. And then if you look at the after effects of that, we saw the, the sale of the uh, non-crypto related deposits to um, Flagstar yep. and the crypto deposits sitting around in the bridge bank you know, reasonably people can disagree about, um, you know, the, the facts and circumstances of that, but I think it's hard to disagree with the outcome. And the outcome certainly looks like the federal government is saying we don't want uh, the, the banking system provide services to crypto. Yeah, it's a tough situation. And, and it, it, this, along with some of the market regulators' actions, um, really goes in the opposite direction of what some of the other major world economies are doing. We've talked about this. We talked about this on our podcast with Tim Grant earlier this year. Um, but if you look at the UK, Europe, uh, Japan, Hong Kong, um, Australia, parts of the Middle East, right? Again, major economies, right? Um, they're really going in the opposite direction here, it looks like. Not just not, you know, doing an operation choke point. Um, but in some cases, being you know put, putting forth and enacting extremely progressive regulations, um, Mika and the and, and the EU, the recommendations from His Majesty's Treasury to the FCA and in the UK, and I just yeah anyway I just can't help but but you know note that stark difference. It's something just as an American, I I am particularly hopeful um, we can move past and and sort of figure out. A way to get over these very restrictive, um, and even and even I'll say, dare I say, negative um, policy decisions that seem to be being made um, in the U.S. On that point, Tyler, you know, I've been uh, following the House Financial Services Committee for a long time. Um, what does it look like now? We have we have uh, uh, Representative Patrick McHenry um, of the great state of North Carolina is in charge. Is the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. Um, I guess uh, a Democrat uh, representative Maxine Waters now is the ranking member. Um, they've worked together in the past. They worked last summer a bit on that stablecoin bill that was widely reported. Um, you've got Representative French Hill now sort of in charge of a subcommittee um, on that uh, on the House Financial Cur- uh, Services Committee that's focused on digital assets. What's the mood look like at House Financial Services? Uh, you know, do we feel positive about? Anything getting done on a bipartisan basis this year um, that could be positive for the crypto industry? Yeah, absolutely. And just to 
tie one ribbon around like the banking issue. I even think there's like a positive narrative within uh, Congress relative to the banking issues because we have seen um, some pretty strong oversight from both the Senate Banking and Committee and the House Financial Services Committee uh, relative to these debanking efforts. And we've seen it in the past couple of weeks. There were multiple hearings in both the House and the Senate uh, with the uh, with the chair of the FDIC, with the vice chair of supervision from the Fed, and also with the Treasury Department, all relative to these issues. And we saw like specific commentary. So I think we'll continue to see like people in uh, people, policymakers, particularly legislators, pushing back against like the debanking. Great. Um, relative to like the the progressive actions that might happen, or like the bipartisan work that's happening in the House Financial Services Committee, I think it, I think it's entirely true that both Chair McHenry and Ranking Member, Member Waters are trying to sort of build the momentum around producing both a stablecoin bill and then a market structure uh, package. And I, I see that because they are pulling together these bipartisan briefings. So they're trying to do everything together. So they're having briefings from experts coming in and talking about stablecoin policy. They're having briefings from experts coming in and talking about market structure issues. And they're also doing it in concert with the Ag Committee. And I think that's really important because there's this historic um, jurisdictional di uh, divide between securities and commodities being like the Ag Committee and the House Financial Services Committee. And I think what Chair McHenry and Ranking Member Waters are trying to do is like build a collegial environment and do briefings together. And then I, it looks like they're going to release at some point in time these two different legislative packages and try to move them through their committees uh, with like a dual referral process, which is, you know, Washington, D.C. parlance for like they're going to try to do it together and they're going to try to produce a piece of legislation out of the House uh, that has bipartisan support, which I think is very a, a very strong signal to. Uh, people in our space who are who care about policy and regulation. Yeah, that's great. I didn't realize that the the sort of bipartisan spirit uh, that Rep uh, Representative McHenry and Representative uh, Waters we know they had last summer has really sort of you know persisted so so dramatically. That's great. Not just between the two parties, like you said, but between the financial services and the agricultural committees. That that would be ideal, right? I mean, I think that that's great to hear. Is this the one issue in Congress where we're seeing significant? This, I guess, in China, you know, hating on China are the two main bipartisan issues right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Washington uh, finds strange bedfellows. So, um, yeah, these those are definitely two bipartisan issues. There's lots of other stuff going on in Washington. I'm not I'm not saying this is like the only important oh, totally. issue. We obviously have like the the debt ceiling debacle of whatever might happen there. Yeah, what is the current um, state on the debt ceiling? Right, Are, we're, we're the the uh, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, is currently using what emergency measures to fund the government because we we're actually out of money at the moment. That's right, and <laughs> um, and they always Speaker solve McCarthy, this, right? They've never not solved this. They've never not solved it, but we've come close to not solving it a couple of times. And if you remember back in 2011, like the last time that this was like a serious right. emergency debate, uh, when Speaker Boehner was around, he was negotiating with uh, President Obama at the time, and we had sort of like that near default, but we did have a slight downgrade, if memory is serving me correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've come close before, 
Now is a question of it's pretty much the exact same political divide. You have Republicans controlling the House. You have Democrats controlling the Senate and a Democratic uh, elected uh, president in the White House. So it's the same dynamics as 2011. I think the only difference is like we have a really different conference in the House from a Republican majority. And we have a much thinner majority in the House than we did in 2011. Right. So you had a, a more I think it's fair to say a more moderate Republican conference in the House in 2011, um, but a bigger one, um, whereas you have. Is that fair? I, I don't know. I, I don't I wouldn't say we had a more moderate. I would say uh, we had a there was a larger majority that Speaker Boehner at the time enjoyed. And there was still this um, uh, the conference was still divided uh, insofar as there was less collegiality around sort of the uh, the underlying conference, like there was less unity in that conference. And okay. so it allowed the speaker to exert a little bit more authority and agency when he was negotiating with the White House. What I think we have now is perhaps more collegiality. It's just in a starker, more hardline position. Got it. Uh, so I don't know exactly how to handicap it other than I think everyone understands that like a downgrade and a default on like uh, the U.S. debt would be, um, you know, a cataclysmic event in like the world's financial markets. Yeah, it would. And not just in the financial markets, but I think in the in the in terms of monetary history, I've been following a lot. I don't want to be a doomer on this. There's a lot of people on on Twitter that are uh, sort of dollar doomers at the moment. And, and I'm not one, but I would say I think that there's been a lot of de-dollarization progress, if we want to call it that worldwide uh, in uh, when I look at 2023 versus 2011, um, the Saudis have really started to to chart a third way here. Um, they're not really, you know, they just we're going to talk. We talked about this with Bimnet uh, earlier, uh, but you know, they've 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 basically orchestrated an OPEC supply production cut against the wishes of the White House, which um, is pretty rare historically in the long you know allyship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. Um, you see Saudi agreeing to sell uh you know their oil the oil that they sell to china priced it in, in the yuan which is about 25 percent of all saudi oil exports on and on there's a whole bunch of examples of this china people didn't even talk about this china just negotiated essentially a peace deal between iran and saudi arabia and the u.s statement was oh well the saudis kept us in uh in the loop on this and uh you know we're just happy that something got done aka like wow like we had nothing to do with this and we're basically totally unimportant now in saudi iranian relations um, so my only point is, I, I mean, I, I think it's a it's it would actually be m much more cataclysmic, even even a slight downgrade this time, because, you know, we, we are in a much more multipolar world uh, now than we were in 2011. So um, let's get it together, people in Washington. Let's get that, get that debt. We should we should also reduce the debt. But, you know, it's also not default on it. Yeah, these are um, <laughs> expenditures already incurred, so to speak. Right. right. So we're just like paying, paying our credit card paying bill. bills we already owe. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tyler, just just, uh, you know, one one last question overall. Um, you know, you talked about markets, uh, a market infrastructure, uh, sorry, market structure uh, legislation and a stable coin bill. Um, when you talk to people about crypto now, you know, I've gone through a lot of eras in the sort of blockchain timeline right um and i joke that the, the the period in you know sort of 2012 to 2015 or so was the blockchain not bitcoin right You'd, every single big bank and big company was like looking into blockchain technology but if you ask them about bitcoin they'd be like oh no 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 no, no. bitcoin 
that's for criminals like because of the Silk Road and whatnot. We had Chris Tarbell on last week uh, who took down the Silk Road. But that blockchain technology, baby, that underlying tech, it's still nice, right? We can do stuff with it. Are we back in that era? Is that what people are asking about now in Washington? You know, they're they're upset about the crypto markets and now but they they still think there's this big blockchain opportunity outside of crypto. I think that's generally right. I would just put us more in like the world of like people want people want to show us the use case. And as I mentioned, like in in Washington, uh, especially in Congress, it's a very reactive body, and people need to be able to see and feel like whatever change is occurring. And we need to be able to produce sort of like the tangible, physical, real world, um, <laughs> like let me play with this toy type thing. Yeah. And I think the the momentum, at least in the policy environment, isn't gone. Um, I just think there are other things that are sliding in as well. And if you think about like AI and the revolution of like chat GPT. Are they worried about AI? I think people look at chat GPT as like the real world use case for AI. Yeah. And they say like, here's this cool tool. I can throw in any question and like the magic computers give me this answer. <laughs> and I don't know how the computers are working, but I have this answer. And that's their use case. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, I mean, I, I, I think it's so funny when you when you bring this up to me, because like I look at, you know, non-sovereign decentralized money in a multipolar world. I look at something like being your own bank or decentralized finance in a world where, gosh, banks and finance look pretty dicey, um, dicier than I think they have in a long time. Um, those seem like powerful use cases to me. But it but I guess those aren't the ones that um a lot of Washington wants to hear about, right? They want the dollar. They don't want decentralized money. They want the dollar. What did Donald? What did President Trump say when he was president? But um, he doesn't. I don't like Bitcoin. It's not money. Like I like the dollar, right? I mean, I mean, is that part of the issue? They're hunting for some other use case than what I think. I mean, even digital collectibles. I mean, I, I, sure, sure, a huge bubble happened in the NFT space, but. Um, you know, there's going to be those digital, you know, you're asking for tangible use cases. My, my Twitter handle is intangible coins, right? Like, is that not compelling? <laughs> should I change it to tangible uses instead of intangible coins? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should change. I don't know. Um, I, I, I hear you. And, you know, as I think about it, like we're kind of in a policy debate for the, the future of like the global capital markets. We are. And in, in some ways, we don't know exactly what is going to happen, uh, but we know that like the future in like 50 years or 100 years is highly unlikely to look like it does today. And so if someone suggests like a, a use case might be like tokenizing securities, right? But like unless we have the ability to actually do that and unless we have the ability to like actually conceive of that and consume it from like a retail investor uh, perspective, it's very hard to convince policymakers because what they need is like, show me things that I can tell my constituents that I'm working on. And if my constituents on the largest don't care about these things, how am I supposed to care about it? Yeah, I get that. Um, well, I think the last survey I saw, um, I forget who produced this, but 20% of Americans own crypto uh, as of the end of 2022. So hopefully that's a lot of constituents. Um, hey, Tyler Williams, uh, Galaxy's head of public policy and regulatory affairs. As always, my friend, thank you so much for uh, joining, and we'll we'll check in with you in a few months, and and we'll see where the where the party is then. Maybe maybe around the debt ceiling in, in the summer. Sounds great. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tyler. That's it for Galaxy Brains this week. Thank you to our guest Tyler Williams and Bimnet Abibi as always. 
it's it's really an interesting time in market. So I'm really happy that we get to share it with you every week. And so we will see you next week. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.